And now the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. It was going to be a disaster. Gary Grimshaw had finally decided to take a bold step in his life, but it was going to turn out to be the most humiliating experience he'd ever had. Gary's grandfather, Ezra Grimshaw, worked as a location scout out in Monument Valley for the making of How the West Was Won back in 1961 and 62. Two years later, he was then asked to be second assistant director on Cheyenne Autumn. He had such great stories about working with John Ford, John Wayne, Debbie Reynolds, Jimmy Stewart, and others. Gary ate it all up as a little kid and wanted nothing more than to be a filmmaker. Gary's father, Bennett Grimshaw, had also scouted locations for Forrest Gump and Back to the Future 3. His big boast, however, was when he spent the day with a crew which included Mel Gibson's brother, Donnell, and stunt coordinator Mick Rogers for the upcoming film Maverick. They were looking to shoot much of the movie somewhere in southern Utah. Dad took Donnell and Mick out in his Jeep and showed them around Zarahemla Valley and down through the Kanab area. He then took them all the way over to Warm Creek and then onto Mexican Hat. Near there, he turned onto Moki Dugway, a switchback road that winds 1,200 feet from Cedar Mesa to the valley floor near Valley of the Gods. It was at that point that Mick Rogers insisted on driving, and Mick loved to drive like a stuntman. Dad was not normally faint of heart, but this was more cliffhanging, quite literally at times, than any roller coaster he'd ever been on. To top it off, Mick was an Aussie, and while he had worked a lot in America, Dad could tell that Mick was less comfortable with a left-seated steering wheel than with a right. Dad's life flashed and reflashed before his eyes several times along the way. Ultimately, the production team decided to shoot most of the outdoor segments near Warm Creek and Lake Powell, and even though Dad was asked to join the team, he felt that his talents were meant for a less harrowing life on the family sheep ranch near Zarahemla. Besides, film shoots of this size could often keep him away from home for weeks at a time. He had little children then and didn't want to be an absent father. Well... Dad's experience was not discouraging to Gary. Movies were magical to Gary, and not just the finished project. Of course, he loved sitting in a dark theater and being taken on bigger-than-life journeys, but he was even more fascinated by the behind-the-scenes stuff. When he was 11, Dad took him to set a few times during the filming of Broken Arrow, the one starring John Travolta and Christian Slater, not the 1950 James Stewart film of the same title, he didn't witness any spectacular special effects or anything, but the way director John Woo set up each scene and waited for just the right moment when the sun was setting or the moon was rising to catch the light he needed left an indelible impression on young Gary. Gary made a lot of shorts when he was in junior high and high school, and in 2005, his friend Huck Benyon asked him to make a little film that would serve as Huck's proposal to Laney Folsom. The film turned out great, even though the marriage between Huck and Laney did not. At 35, Gary was still single, without any immediate prospects. He really hadn't dated all that much in his life, which led to some speculation on the part of his friends and family. 
In high school, Huck and their friend Adam would tease Gary by saying that his sheep were his best friends. Now they gently teased him about being gay. They were careful, though, he could tell, because, he thought, they believed it might be true and they didn't want to lose Gary as a friend. It wasn't true, though. He was attracted to women well enough. The problem, if his self-psychoanalysis held any water, was that he had too idealistic a vision of love and marriage as he'd seen it in early movies. It's not that all movies from the romantic era of the 30s and 40s had happy endings. It was instead the stardom and mythological prestige of the actresses that filled the screen during that era that gave Gary unrealistic expectations when it came to the glamour and charisma he looked for in a woman. He was on the lookout for Lana Turner, Rita Hayworth, or Greer Garson. Gary was just unwilling to settle, which meant, he knew, that he might be lonely for a long time. Samantha Johns was still enjoying driving a UPS truck. Today she had an interesting package for Larry Dowds. The packet was sent from the Epson Corporation and marked fragile. Sam knew that she was supposed to keep her nose out of things and efficiently and speedily finish her deliveries, but there was rarely any time pressure on her route, which included most of Garfield County, and she saw this as a wonderful opportunity to get to know the people of Zarahemla and the surrounding communities. Marcy Dowds answered the door, and they had a nice chat about the town and the neighbors. When Sam got around to asking about the package, Marcy explained that she and Larry had a home theater in the basement and that their projector lamp had reached a thousand hours of use, so they expected that it would need to be replaced at any time and consequently had ordered a spare. She and Larry were great movie buffs. Larry had transformed more than half the basement to this purpose and had put in two seat-craft leather reclining theater seats. There were a couple of other couches as well, and if need be, they could borrow folding chairs from the church and fit in as many as 36 other people to watch a movie. Bennett Grimshaw would be ready to retire soon and was encouraging his younger son, Gary, to take over the family business. Gary's brother, Clark, had gone on to school at the University of Utah and had become a CPA working for Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco. Clark hated it there, but he had an even greater aversion to sheep farming, so Gary would be the heir apparent. It was actually okay with Gary. He liked working with animals, but he was also determined not to give up on his artistic dreams. He had found a little bit of work as a grip and even a camera operator on some films that were shot in the area, but none of his connections were leading anywhere. He wanted some artistic control, or at least artistic input. Four years ago, Gary decided to enroll in online degree programs through the Los Angeles Film School in both directing and cinematography. Between tuition and equipment, it was a hefty investment. When Dad found out what he was doing, he gave Gary a long, potentially wilting look, but then said to him, some lessons you have to learn for yourself. I hope it works out for you. Gary hadn't wanted to be one of those men that lived with his parents until he was 40, but he was needed at the ranch. 
So he converted an old tack house on the property into a studio apartment and had lived in it for almost 11 years now. He still ate many of his meals with his parents, however, and had never been able to change the dynamic of his parents watching over, scrutinizing, and evaluating every decision he made. He supposed a lot of folks continued being parents to their grown children, but living within 50 yards of the house and depending upon them for much of his sustenance, Gary still often felt like a child instead of an independent adult. With degrees now in hand... Gary began his first real independent film project. For many years, Gary had been captivated by accounts of the last words, stories, or verbal expressions of the dying. He'd remembered reading about how Steve Jobs' last words, while looking past his family at something else in his vision, were, Oh, wow! Oh, wow! Oh, wow! Other stories in his research talked of cancer patients having intricate conversations with predeceased loved ones just before slipping away themselves. His own grandmother on his mother's side, Victoria Nuttall, had shared quite a remarkable story. One day, at age 96, Grandma Nuttall was walking down the sidewalk on her way home from the corner market where she had purchased half a dozen eggs when she was surprised to see her husband standing a few yards in front of her. Zachary had passed 15 years earlier, so this did seem out of the ordinary. Standing behind him and slightly to his right were Victoria's parents, whom she hadn't seen in over 35 years. A mixture of joy, amusement, and confusion came over her. Her loved ones called out to her, coaxing her to come to them. But first, she turned to look behind her, and saw the bag with eggs spilling upon the ground next to what could only be her, still gripping her cane, lying on the broken sidewalk where it had been uprooted by the neighbor's weeping willow. She awoke later in the hospital with her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren all around her, and stayed just long enough to tell that story and express her love to them all. Then she was gone. Gary had seen movies and documentaries that tried to tackle this subject, but he felt that they all had missed the mark. Some were sappy and preachy, others were mocking and close-minded. He wanted to tell it in the best tradition of storytelling, a way of seeing experiences through the eyes of others, going on a cathartic journey, and leaving the judgments and politics for afterwards in the car driving home or as table talk at the local diner. So... He jumped in with both feet. He had all the equipment. He just didn't have actors, crew, or a budget. He knew himself well enough to predict that without some external pressure, he would easily give up on the project as soon as he ran against difficult obstacles. So, his first step was to post flyers around town and messages on the Zarahemla Township Facebook page that there would be a world premiere screening of a film entitled greeting ghosts on Thanksgiving night. After spending the day with family and friends, giving thanks for all you enjoy, come thrill at this new masterpiece by local filmmaker Gary Grimshaw, read the advertisement. Gary liked the sound of it, but after reading his post for the third time on Facebook, he began to panic. Now he had to actually make the thing. That was nine weeks ago. Thanksgiving was in three days. 
Gary thought that the editing would be the easy part, but he had been struggling for over two weeks now and knew that it was hopeless. During the shooting phase, inexperience had allowed him to leave a location and move on to the next, thinking that he had plenty of takes and coverage to work with, but once he was in the editing room, he found that most of the footage was unworkable. If only he could get one more take of this scene or that. He had forgotten to get master shots at some locations, so cutting between takes looked choppy and illogical. The worst part was the sound. He had pretty good sound equipment, but he hadn't been able to hire an experienced sound technician. The sound levels were inconsistent. In about half the scenes, the ambient sound, or the sound of a jet overhead, or a truck passing on the nearby highway was louder than the recorded dialogue. He had tried to have his actors come in for in-studio looping to fix what he could, but some of them were unavailable, and he was out of time. Since he was a kid, Gary had handled intense anxiety by running outside and then screaming, or pulling his hair, or throwing something at the barn door. His mother didn't like it much, but she figured it was better than having him break something in the house. So there Gary was, doing all three, when the UPS driver drove into the yard. Sam had been delivering packages for more than four months now, but had not yet made a delivery to the Grimshaw Ranch. She wondered to herself whether the sight of a man standing in flannel pajamas and Spider-Man slippers, throwing sticks at the barn door, pulling his own hair, and jumping up and down in what looked like a less-than-two-day-old pile of sheep dung was an everyday occurrence. Sam got out of her truck and called out as she walked toward the man who had his back to her. At first, Gary was startled and embarrassed when he heard the voice of someone else in the yard, but the moment he turned to face her, all self-awareness was gone. Right there, standing in front of him, was Lauren Bacall mixed with Jean Tierney and Ava Gardner. He was stupefied. He had never seen such glamour away from the big screen. Even in a UPS uniform, this woman was devastatingly beautiful. Following a few more seconds of chronicling her unassuming smile, cognizance began to return to Gary, and he could smell what he had been hopping up and down in. He carefully stepped out of his Spider-Men, tiptoed to a part of the path free of manure, and returned Sam's greeting with, Is that cannon fire, or is it my heart pounding? Sam's smile broadened even more, causing a physical ache in Gary's chest. Casablanca, right? she asked. All Gary could do was sigh in absolute relief. Relief that such a person really did exist. He was resigning himself to the probable notion that he would never see her again and would be fated for the remainder of his life to look back with fondness on this single moment as the peak of his existence, when abruptly, without any warning from his own heart or brain, Gary blurted out the story of why he was throwing a tantrum in the barnyard. Larry Dowd was not completely unaware that he behaved like a bombastic fool whenever he directed the community theater musicals. 
Now, in the off-season, he wanted to work to make sure that the theater company members considered him a friend. Pride wouldn't allow him to apologize for his behavior directly, but he did extend a personal invitation to each of them, by phone or at their doorstep, to come join Marcy and him for a Thanksgiving feast at their home. In doing so, he made sure to drop his pretentious Brahmin accent and sounded like the Oki that he was. Larry's wife, Marcy, was also aware of her husband's pomposity and of her own egotism in publicly savoring the starring roles that she enjoyed, almost solely because her husband was the director, and because she would have it no other way so long as Larry wanted peace and affection at home. Marcy, too, wanted to make amends. And so, following up on each of her husband's invitations, she would call and offer honest praise to each actor or crew member and implore him or her to join them at Thanksgiving, explaining that the festivities just wouldn't be as pleasant if he or she weren't in attendance. While some of the invitees had already made other plans with extended family, a substantial portion of the company accepted, and so the party was on. It was to be a potluck. Everyone coming had committed to bringing either a side dish or dessert— Marcy would cook up all the mashed potatoes while Larry handled the turkey. Joy and Bilby Farnsworth had agreed to bring a second turkey. Larry had recently purchased an oversized 44-quart stainless steel turkey deep fryer kit, and he was anxious to use it for the party. He knew all the dangers of deep fryers and had been watching safety videos since he ordered it. He ordered the big one because he expected 40-plus people to show up, and so he would need to cook two large turkeys between 20 and 25 pounds each. Each turkey might take about an hour and a half to cook, so he would have to schedule accordingly. Sam had finished two more deliveries out to Tropic and then returned to help poor Gary. She wasn't sure what she could do, since she had never worked on cutting a film before, but she did have a remarkable artistic eye and understood composition, so she thought she would give it a try. This wasn't her muse talking. She hadn't had any promptings from that source for a while. She just wanted to help this man. He was passionate, driven, delightfully goofy, and in need of a friend. Gary showed her into his makeshift cutting room. It was really just an old storage closet with a desk and a computer, although he did have an antique film splicer sitting on a shelf in homage to pioneers of the industry. Now, of course, it was all done digitally with editing software. He pulled another chair into the room, which pretty much filled every remaining inch of space. There wasn't room to move the chairs around, so they each had to turn their chairs sideways, step over the seats, and then readjust the chair's positioning toward the computer screen. Gary began showing her his chosen cuts, and she watched patiently for about 20 minutes, but then said, Show it all to me. I have to see everything you've got. But there are almost seven hours of footage here, he explained. Sam was insistent. At first, Gary gave commentary, explaining what he was trying to communicate with a certain shot, and why the take went wrong, or how the lighting didn't work, or how the actor had just not taken his direction, but Sam shushed him each time. So he resigned himself to bringing snacks and drinks, and finally a whole meal that his mother sent over. 
Deborah Grimshaw was elated that her son had a woman in his room. It was nearing midnight. The last footage had played. Sam smiled, stretched as she stepped over her chair, and said, I'll be back tomorrow after my deliveries. Tell your mother that I loved her fried chicken, and especially the potatoes and homemade cream corn. She started toward the door and turned back to add, Oh, let her know that I'm slightly allergic to seafood, but that I'm game for just about anything else. Gary was stuck in a mixture of wonder and despair as he watched Sam walk through the door. Abruptly, Sam came back through the doorway and crossed to him. Don't worry, Coop, she told him. We'll make something great together. And she kissed him on the cheek before leaving once more and shutting the door. What a remarkable woman, was all Gary could think. And how could she know? How could she know that he had been named after Gary Cooper? Joy Farnsworth had had to do most of the work around the house since her husband Bilby's stroke. She had gone through a period of resentment, but had worked through it and was now graciously grateful for the wonderful years they had had together, and even for this opportunity in their waning years to serve the man she loved and make sure he felt useful and happy. She couldn't rely on Bilby for too much, since his mind would wander, but if she gave him simple, direct instructions for immediate tasks, he could be of help. Friday, her direction was to take the turkey out of the freezer in the garage and put it into the extra refrigerator also in the garage. Bilby marched right out to the garage and came back a few minutes later with a satisfied smile. The smile worried Joy, so she went out to check, and sure enough, the turkey was in the refrigerator. All was well. Two hours later, unbeknownst to Joy, Bilby suddenly remembered the instruction he had been given, but forgot that he had accomplished it. So he marched out to the garage and dutifully moved the turkey from the refrigerator to the freezer. Tuesday afternoon, the thought struck Bilby again. He'd remembered Joy asking him to move something from the freezer, he so hated disappointing Joy, and yet his mind often caused him to do just that. He strained to remember what it was. Upon inspecting the freezer, he saw the turkey, and the instruction all came back to him, so he moved the turkey to the refrigerator and sighed in relief that he wouldn't disappoint Joy again. When Sam showed up late Tuesday afternoon... She found Gary putting on a brave face, but obviously a little distraught. They haven't sold any tickets, he announced. The social hall is going to show my film, but Jake Miller told me today that not a single ticket has been sold and wondered if I wanted to go through with it. I told him that I didn't want to pay the rental if no one was coming. He put on a valiant smile and added, So, I guess we're off the hook. Thanks for all your help but there's no pressure to finish the project anymore. I'll work it out another time. Sam just cocked her head, looked at him as though he were insane, took out her phone, arranged to show the film in the Dowd's media room. Marcy Dowd was thrilled to have some entertainment for her guests that didn't include Larry sitting at the piano and playing old Rogers and Hammerstein tunes, pulled him toward his tack room apartment and said, Fasten your seatbelt. 
going to be a bumpy night. Larry cautiously lowered his turkey into the fryer. Guests would start arriving in about an hour, and he wanted to have the first turkey well underway by then. His careful preparation paid off, and there were no problems as the hot oil bubbled around the bird. He replaced the lid and went into the house to help Marcy peel the last of the potatoes. Soon, most of the guests had arrived, and Larry graciously bade them enter his home, but encouraged them to go right on through to the back deck to enjoy the late afternoon sun before it set. Even though the temperature had plummeted last night and a dusting of snow had covered the ground this morning, the day had warmed to the upper fifties. Besides, Larry wanted witnesses to his great turkey triumph. Hors d'oeuvres were spread out at locations around the large deck. Larry checked the bird for the fifth time and determined that it was finished. He called everyone to attention so that they could witness the raising of the bird. It turned out perfectly, a beautiful golden brown, and he was sure juicy and tender inside. He announced that while the second turkey was cooking, everyone could retire to the basement to watch Gary Grimshaw's new film. Guests began descending the stairs and appropriately ooing and awing at the home movie theater setup. Joy Farnsworth stepped forward with Bilby, who was carrying the second turkey. Joy assured Larry that the turkey had been defrosting for six days and was ready for frying. Larry lowered the bird into the oil with his special fireproof glove and stainless steel turkey hanger that had come in the kit. The turkey popped and sputtered a little more than the first, but all seemed well. With lid in place, they all began to retreat to the movie theater. Larry planned to sneak upstairs and check on the bird every few minutes. Just as they reached the top of the staircase, however, Larry heard the friar stand creak and tremble. Unlike the many cautionary videos that Larry had watched on YouTube, there was no explosion of fire. No, this, Larry ultimately determined, was quite a rare event. When Larry was a boy, he remembered taking two empty food cans from his mother's kitchen, one slightly larger than the other. In the smaller can, he would drill a small hole in the bottom. He would pour a couple of inches of water into the larger can, lower the smaller can upside down into the larger can, squeeze a firecracker into the drilled hole, and light it. The ensuing explosion forced enough pressure against the water in the larger can to shoot the smaller can a good 40 feet or higher into the air. Apparently, something similar happened here. After a few moments of frying, a crevice opened between the breast and a wing of the bird, allowing the hot oil to suddenly interact with the yet-frozen center. The resulting steam created immense pressure beneath the turkey, and shot the bird straight up out of the fryer. The still mostly frozen fowl flew, as it never had in life, high over the fence and right through the roof of the new shed that Nathan Zeller had just finished building in his backyard next door. Larry had never really gotten to know Mr. Zeller. That was about to change. Meanwhile, downstairs, the movie had begun. While Gary had never meant this film to be humorous, Sam had seen that the footage had great comic potential. There was a take in which Zim Cadencia, playing the loving uncle come to greet the grandmother as she was dying, 
stepped on a thistle that poked past the sandals he had been dressed in. Zim hollered out in pain, lifting his right foot and turning in confusion toward the camera. Sam had shown Gary that he could intercut that take with a take in which the grandmother, played by Grace Benyon, had swung her cane at a cricket that had been jumping near her skirt during shooting. The cutting made it look as though Grandma was swinging her cane at the spirit of her uncle. Together, Sam and Gary had taken hours of blooper footage and turned them into a wonderful, silent, slapstick comedy about an old woman fighting off the ghosts of her dead relatives who were trying to get her to leave with them and come to heaven. They had added some Keystone Cop-type music they found available on the internet and laughed together at the result. The audience tonight laughed as well. Gary knew that he could still go back and make the film he had imagined someday, but the extraordinary and mystical, glamorous Sam had seen things he could not see and helped make his first film a success. Gary looked for the woman who had become his muse, but Sam, uncomfortable with praise, had slipped away. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend. Mm -hmm.